Hi everyone, welcome to another special bonus episode of Coal at Sunset, a Colorado town in transition, presented by the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. I'm Trent Noss, Managing Editor at the Institute, filling in for Kristen Uhlenbrock. Throughout our series, you heard from Duane Hiley, CEO of Tri-State Generation and Transmission Association. As you may recall, Tri-State is a member-owned electrical co-op serving more than 40 local power districts across four states. We talked with Duane quite a bit about the forthcoming coal closures in Craig, Colorado, but our conversation ranged much further than that. We also chatted about the evolution of energy markets, transmission capacity, and emerging technologies like hydrogen and advanced battery storage that will shape the energy transition over the decades to come. We wanted to share some of those bonus excerpts with you because they provide an interesting first-hand glimpse into how Colorado utilities are thinking about a transition that will ultimately affect all of us. Our conversation begins with a discussion about regional energy markets. I hope you enjoy. One other key element as we think about the energy transition in the West, and I'm not just talking about Colorado now, I'm talking about all the Western states, is the need for a regional transmission organization called an RTO, or um, sometimes you just call it a day ahead power market, but an organized power market in the West. So I'm new to this uh, job at Tri-State, having come from the Eastern grid where I worked all my previous career. So I've been out here on the Western grid now for two years and was frankly, a little disappointed to see that we hadn't moved further in terms of how energy markets work in the West. So in the West, utilities are still trading energy the way that the Eastern grid people did, you know, a decade and a half ago. I mean, it's all bilateral transactions, we call it. You know, in other words, I have some surplus energy. I contact my neighbors, I call them or now more like electronically text them and say, I've got some surplus next hour. Would you like to buy it? And they're like, sure, you know, what's your price? And that's how we're executing trades. I mean, like a trading floor, but that's really archaic because if you look at how everyone else does it in this country, east of us, there's automated electronic power auctions that occur every few minutes in real time. And there's a day ahead market that clears a day ahead and allows people to price out what power is gonna be, allows them to hedge power prices in advance, uh, very sophisticated markets. But the other thing it enables is the lowest possible cost every hour for everyone on that grid so that you don't have pockets of high cost energy that don't get moved out of the way and lower emissions. So you can dispatch resources against one another based on their emissions. And you can better integrate renewables because you're not just integrating into my little grid or the grid in my state, but across multiple states. And if you look at the experience of, I'll just cite Southwest Power Pool because they're the closest to us in the East they serve a swath of the United States. It goes from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, the Dakotas, like that. It's like 15 states that they are. They serve as like the air traffic controller of the grid for that region. So that means the utilities had to give up a little control that they turn it over to the air traffic controller to say where the power is going to flow. But the air traffic controller says, there's some low cost energy up here in Iowa that just can't get out. But if that could go down into Arkansas, it would lower prices and maybe make things more reliable. We see some transmission congestion over here in the west side of the system. And if we were to move some energy to the east, it would not put you as high of risk of having a blackout. 
So it's reliability focused, it's affordability focused, and it's increasingly focused on clean energy. If you look at the success of the Southwest Power Pool, they have now demonstrated that, uh, they, first of all, they have more wind energy than anything else. So that's their number one energy resource today. They used to be criticized for being the coal heavy RTO. Well, now they're the windiest RTO and they have successfully integrated over 80%. I think now the number is 83% wind during some hours. Those kinds of numbers are way beyond what Dwayne envisioned earlier in his career. So when I was a younger engineer, I was asked to do a study for the state of Missouri and determine what the maximum amount of wind energy could be integrated into that grid. And because we were just talking about one state and one utility area, after I did my work, I said, you know, it's about seven to 10 percent. And if we get any more wind than that, we're going to break the system. We're going to have blackouts or problems. Well, I was only off by a factor of 10. So my engineering analysis was wrong, and, and largely because we do it on so much larger scale now. It's not one wind farm that can come or go. By the time you have wind farms across a giant geographic area, there's more reliability of that. The weather forecasts have got better. We can now predict wind so accurately a day in advance that we can bid it into a market and make money on it. So that's a pretty cool thing. And just the ability to integrate across such a broad geographic area in multiple states means you can push more renewables into that where it might overwhelm one area as long as you can spread it out. So this is what we need in the West today, desperately, is to get to a market that can integrate renewables across multiple states, respecting you know whatever emission constraints they have within their area, but also respecting the very severe transmission constraints we have in the West, and yet make it more reliable, more affordable. Tri-State's already taken the first step by moving our power into real-time power markets. It's not as optimal as the day-ahead markets, but right now about 80% of the energy we serve is being moved through a organized market of some type. And we're just looking forward to getting to that better market. And maybe within a few years, if we work really hard, we can get there. He knows that everyone isn't quite on board with this idea yet. When you think about utilities joining a market, it is voluntary. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission established this construct decades ago that utilities could go into voluntary markets. And so it remains voluntary. And some utilities are hesitant to join because they're not sure it's in the best interest of their shareholders to do that. That'd be in the case of the investor-owned utility, or in some cases, it's not in the best interest of their ratepayers. They're concerned about costs going into a market. And I think just that history has proven that those concerns are unrealistic. There's concerns expressed by regulatory commissions, like the state regulatory commissions, fearful they're going to lose control or lose uh, power. And I think they really should be concerned about the money that's being left on the table because we're not in organized markets yet. Those organized markets would bring lower costs and greater reliability. And the loss of control that the regulatory commissions would suffer is so minimal compared to the benefits that would come to the utilities. In this case, the regional market would say, where's the best place to put increased transmission capability? It doesn't even have to be a new power line. It just might be one that's not heavy enough to carry the flow that needs to flow. And it's like if you have a two-lane highway when you need a four-lane highway. So they identify those bottlenecks and say, look, right now we're having traffic jams every day and the power that could be flowing, the renewable energy or the low-cost energy that could be flowing isn't getting where it needs to go. And so if we could just expand this highway, it would make such a difference, maybe for a neighboring state though. And this is the problem when the state commissions are looking at it, they're required to look at it for the benefit of their state. They're really not supposed to, you know, like the Colorado Commission is not supposed to worry about whether the costs in Wyoming are too high or too low. They're worried about the cost for ratepayers in Colorado. And so if there would be a transmission investment in Colorado, 
that makes the power cheaper for Wyoming, why would they do that? And this is why a regional approach is better. You can look at the whole picture and figure out where the investments need to be made. Oftentimes it's, it's hundreds of miles away from where the load is being served. So, you know, if there's a bottleneck because there's a, a circuit breaker in a substation 200 miles away that was sized too small, they can identify that and say, if you just replace that circuit breaker with a heavy one, more power could flow and we would have fewer constraints. It's that kind of thing. We covered hydrogen technology with Dwayne in episode eight of our main series, but he also shared some of his thoughts around the viability of nuclear power. Small nuclear reactors are wonderful because they could be a non-carbon emitting base load fuel source that could run for years, obviously. So that could be a real solution if not for the cost problems that have always plagued nuclear. And even when we tried to go through this nuclear renaissance at the turn of the century and a number of utilities committed to nuclear plants and now Southern Company is struggling to complete the one that they're building and it's uh, 150% cost overruns at this point and it's two years behind schedule and they're not done yet. So I'm pretty sure it'll be 200% of whatever its initial cost was when they finally get it done. It's just too big of a bet to go with central station pressurized water reactor technology at this point. Now, there's two small modular vendors that are making some progress. One's a pressurized water reactor technology that's being explored in Utah with the municipals there in partnership with one of the federal labs. And uh, it has a price target that's uh, tough. So I've heard them say $65 a megawatt hour. I've also heard maybe it's really $75 a megawatt hour. I don't know what the number is, but if it's those kind of numbers, it's gonna have a hard time competing against renewables and storage, honestly. Even lithium ion battery storage is gonna, you know, maybe in a few years get to those kind of numbers. So I think it's risky to, as a utility leader, I think it's risky to invest in the nuclear technology as much as I like it. We don't wanna be serial number one, right? We wanna be the first person in line to be the second one. As with any emerging tech, it will likely come down to cost. So when we think about prices of the different resources, right now we can build wind and solar in this last tranche of uh, 1,000 megawatts is a large block of wind and solar that we just released. The average price of all that was 1.7 cents a kilowatt hour, $17 a megawatt hour. And so that helps actually reduce our cost. It's lower cost than other fossil fuels we could burn. It displaces more expensive fuels. So we're excited about that. I'm not sure the next tranche we build will be quite as inexpensive because some of the federal tax credits are rolling off, but at the same time, the technology still continue to improve and get better. So maybe those will offset each other. But if you can imagine as much as you want to build of renewables coming in at less than two cents a kilowatt hour and your conventional fossil fuels are all in costs or six, seven, eight, nine cents a kilowatt hour, depending on what you want to look at. And nuclear, I think, will come in. People are talking about it being in the sixes, but I really think the sevens or eights are much more rational numbers for that. If you're projecting that technology, um, it's going to be hard for it to compete. Ultimately, utilities want to be able to store days worth of energy at a time. That'll require some kind of large-scale battery innovation. In this final clip, Dwayne shares what he's watching for in the energy storage sector. Right now, lithium-ion is leading the race because it's real and it can be deployed at scale, but I'm concerned about its cost. Its performance works, but I am excited about some of the other competing technologies, and I'm, I'm not a super expert on them, but I just see 
that what utilities need is different than what automobiles need. You know, automobiles mean a light battery stores a reasonable amount of energy. And so lithium ion works well for that. But utilities need something that doesn't have to be light, but it needs to run for a really long time. And we don't need just a few hours. We need days of storage. And that's the trick now that we're exploring. I'm excited about the iron battery. I don't know if it'll work. There's a demonstration coming on the line. There's other technologies as well. Uh, flow batteries are cool because you can charge up electrolyte. And again, I could have that 20 million gallon tank farm at Craig, Colorado, full of charged up electrolyte that when we need it for five days, we just flow it back through. So maybe that's the answer. It's just a matter of which one's gonna win economically. And, and are we far enough advanced today to be able to predict that with enough certainty to start making those investments? If you think about how long it takes to develop the large scale projects that give us the lowest cost, we've only got a few more years at the most before we have to pull the trigger on a decision and start building something. And so what will that be? And if we don't have any other options, maybe it is lithium ion batteries. Actually, our filed resource plan says we'd like to have it be a gas plant. And the gas plant, because we know it runs and it's very inexpensive, we would manage its carbon emissions to where it only runs when you really, really need it, but it would be there when you really, really need it. So the question is, uh, if we build that and uh, we say, and right now you can buy a combustion turbine like a giant jet engine that generates power and uh, would burn natural gas today, but is convertible to hydrogen in the future. So maybe that's the answer because, you know, we don't want, we don't want our members investing in a plant that will only run for five years and then get shut down or 10 years. It needs to be a 30 or 40 or 50 year technology. And that might be one way to bridge that gap is today we're not certain what's going to happen. Let's go ahead and put the gas plant in. It's going to run pretty infrequently. And then as we develop the hydrogen technology, we start burning hydrogen in that plant instead of natural gas. And now it's a completely green resource. 